Welcome to One of Those Times in a Life, sharing songs and stories around the virtual campfire. At this campfire, some brothers and a mother. May you find someone within you who is gentle and is strong. May you know that somewhere where you know that you belong. May life always fascinate you. May wonders never cease. May you find the missing piece. Those are the first few lines of The Missing Piece, a song I wrote toward the end of 1984, a few months after that all-consuming Seattle concert. And while songwriting remained fundamental to what I was doing, after that concert, I decided I would try to fulfill a dream and write a novel. I'd written a children's story, The Beginning of the Rainbow, when I was living in L.A., and I'd, I'd studied different books on writing, especially John Gardner's The Art of Fiction. In the fall of 83, I'd attended a night class on novel writing at the University of Washington, taught by a guy named Jack Cady. And now, a year later, I was retaking the class, this time as I began to write that novel. Jack Cady was an ideal teacher for a 37-year-old wannabe novelist. He was 15 years older than I and had his first novel published when he was 49 years old. A conscientious objector during the Korean War, he ended up serving in the Coast Guard, working as a cross-country truck driver and finally having his first short story published when he was 40. He made becoming a novelist feel accessible and possible. He would come into class at the last minute with his German shepherd and a large cup of coffee, sit on the desk at the front of the room, and simply start talking. One night a week, for ten weeks, he gave us keys to unlocking the mysteries of novel writing. With a rich knowledge of American history, he talked with passion and compassion about process. He taught us about points of view, voice, narrative, seen. His rule of thumb for writing dialogue was to imagine two people walking toward each other speaking in a normal tone of voice. He said from the time they could hear each other until the time they reached each other was as long as any written conversation needed to be. Every day during the week I would write. Though I'd bought my first Macintosh computer earlier that year, Word processing was in its infancy, and Jack believed the tools we use when we write help inform what we write and how we write. So I chose a fountain pen to create a first draft, and then a typewriter to create a revised manuscript. The story was called My Brother's Keeper. Using both third-person and omniscient points of view, it takes place in the summer of 1979, when the protagonist, Warren Nelson, has just finished his junior year in college. And the day he finishes his finals, he impulsively joins the Navy. And the story begins with him breaking the news to his pacifist artist, Mother Elizabeth. And we soon learn that Warren made his startling choice in a desperate attempt to get free of the shadow of his older half-brother, David. The half-siblings were born ten years apart on August 26th. And David died somewhat mysteriously a few weeks before 
what would have been his 21st birthday. And when the end of August arrives in 1979, Warren will be older than his brother ever was. David's death was so traumatic the family could only speak of him in reverent whispers and all the remnants of his life were buried in the basement in a steamer trunk that years before had carried everything Elizabeth and her young son David owned as they left their Midwest home in search of a new life. A life they found on the West Coast in the person of Dr. Jim Nelson who married Elizabeth and adopted David and the family became complete when Warren and his sister were born and then was suddenly broken asunder with David's death. Warren spends the summer of 1979 trying to learn who his brother was. He contacts David's former girlfriend who is going through a difficult divorce and they become romantically involved as they try to resurrect David, the young man who had, quote, abandoned them 10 years earlier. The book's climax comes as Warren battles David's ghost on the high bluffs patterned after those of Seattle's Discovery Park. And it's not a battle to the death, but one for life. The question is, can Warren make David become alive enough and be real enough so those parts of Warren paralyzed and locked away by David's death will be free enough to live again? And the story ends with Warren older now than his older brother ever was, heading off to basic training, having made a sort of peace with his mother, his brother's ghost, and most importantly, himself. And for the next year, I'd develop that story. At a workshop in the summer of 85, Harriet Arno, one of Jack Cady's heroes, and the author of The Dollmaker chose to discuss my brother's keeper in class. I was, I was thrilled. And eventually the novel was completed, but I guess you'd say never finished. I believe James Michener is correct when he says that writing is really rewriting. And I ran out of energy and imagination to keep at it. Jack Cady got a full-time job teaching at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma in the fall of 85. And I never saw him again. And maybe by putting the manuscript away, if I did that, I, didn't, I wouldn't have to worry either about success or failure. And maybe it was more important to know that I could do it than actually getting it done. I, I don't know. I do know I had less time to work, to work on that novel when I got my old job back with the Brothers Four. Maybe one more time courageous than the times you are afraid. And may you be doubtful one less time than you have failed. May you get to know your demons, sometimes set them free. May you find the missing piece. In March of 1985, six months after I started working on my brother's keeper, I was offered my old spot back in the Brothers Four. And the guy who had replaced me was leaving to join the Kingston Trio. The three original guys I was rejoining were between eight and ten years older than I was. And in a way, I would still be the kid brother, but having just turned 38, I was no longer the kid trying to decide whether to make music my life's work. Instead, I was trying to find ways to make music work 
and rejoining the group was a perfect fit. There was no more wondering why the group kept singing those old songs. I could simply, finally, and fully appreciate the chance to represent 60s folk music. It also felt good to have a job with a title that people understood. When someone asked me what I did, I could tell them I traveled the world as a member of the Brothers Four. And the group had a manager at the time with an office and a secretary in downtown Seattle. And it was fun to be back with those guys. With a few exceptions, in the 80s and 90s, the group sang in tuxedos. Our casual style of music juxtaposed with that formal look somehow made people smile. In the fall of 85, the group did a couple of concerts with the Northwest Choir at the Fifth Avenue Theater in downtown Seattle. The show called I Hear America Singing was recorded and a video was made. The idea was that choirs around the country would hear the music and want to add the show and the group to their concert seasons. And while the idea never truly caught on, I think it remains a great idea. And watching how hard Bob Flick worked to make it successful gave me an important perspective on the work I was doing in my own career. I will say it's a lot easier to be part of someone else's dream than trying to make your own come true. Find the missing piece to every puzzle Find the missing piece to all your wars Share the missing piece that is in others And be the missing piece that someone else is searching for Like Warren, the protagonist in My Brother's Keeper, I grew up feeling caught in my older brother's shadow. My older brother, Mike, was born in June of 1945, a few days before Dad shipped off to the Pacific to be part of the invasion of Japan. And when the war suddenly ended, those who'd been overseas longest came home first. So Dad didn't get to see his son for nearly a year. He soon was gone again, this time to the hospital, first as a physician and then as a patient. When I was born in March of 1947, Dad was a patient in the state mental hospital in St. Cloud. A few months later, he came home for good. And the only things that mattered were that we were together, and then the nightmare of the previous year be put behind us and never talked about again. As a newborn, I understood none of that and in retrospect ended up on some level making myself responsible for and even the reason for the anxiety and the fear that were a natural part of those days. In that world, my older brother, who was entering what would become known as the terrible twos, became my roommate, my guide, my protector, my best friend, and my biggest rival. We lived first in Shakopee, a town just south of Minneapolis, and then when my brother was seven and I was five, we moved to Spokane. Mike and I created a world we called Dinky Town, made out of clay and a brand of metal cars and trucks called Dinky Toys, and we could keep each other entertained for hours on end, speaking a language using a sort of duck talk that only the two of us could truly understand. I grew up a natural competitor, who hated to lose and was terrified of falling behind. The unspoken rules that I created and 
played by did not include a handicap for our difference in ages. So I never understood or could accept that as I rode my smaller bike, I was not expected and could not expect to keep up. Instead, what I remember is that terrible feeling of watching him with what seemed like no effort get farther and farther ahead. Besides the age differences, I struggled to read. My mom would say years later it was likely undiagnosed dyslexia. I've always struggled with my weight, and for the longest time when it came to sports, I couldn't figure out whether I was left or right-handed. And the fact that my brother ended up being the student body president as well as the class valedictorian who went to Stanford where he graduated with honors before going to medical school made him a hard act to follow. And the fact that when I was in the eighth grade and that we liked the same girl and she chose him not wasn't an ego boost. And during those same years, my brother and I were taking individual banjo lessons from an old guy named Dutch Groshoff and lots of my half-hour lessons started with Dutch spending 10 minutes smoking Salem cigarettes and telling me my brother was by far the best student he ever taught, except maybe the kid who in 1932 drowned in Liberty Lake during a picnic. I remember leaving a lot of those lessons, doing my best to keep from crying, sometimes unsuccessfully. One of the best things about one of those times in a life, this project and these chronicles, is continuing to discover how much of this journey is one of gratitude and grace. A few months ago, Mike was over for dinner. A few days earlier, I'd realized in some ways for the first time how proud that I was of him and all that he'd accomplished all those years ago and finally free of jealousy and fear. I, I told him so. Hopefully it's never too late for precious moments of healing. He and I had a couple of nice moments years earlier in the summer of 85. He turned 40 that June. We had dinner together on his birthday. I read him a letter I'd written about being his brother. And then when I was in Spokane one weekend that August, I learned he was having arthroscopic knee surgery the next Monday. I decided I was going to be with him. My car was in pretty bad shape, bad enough that the clutch went out near Ritzville on a Sunday morning heading west. I couldn't get the car out of third gear. The gas station attendant promised me that I couldn't hurt it by driving it. So I drove the remaining 250 miles to Seattle, luckily finding a big enough parking place in front of my house so I didn't have to go in reverse. And then I got on my bike, and I rode the 25 or so miles to his place on Vashon Island. It was a warm summer evening, Seattle still retaining its small town feel, and along the waterfront across Harbor Island through West Seattle, Alki Beach to Lincoln Park, a ferry ride to Vashon, up the hill, a dozen miles to the south end of the island, where we had a nice dinner. I drove him to surgery the next day. The knee got fixed. Eventually the car got worked on. And then, at dinner, so many years later, some childhood memories were re-remembered. 
and repaired. May there be someone who knows you. May you know them in return. May you find new ways of giving. And always something more to learn. May the world that you have hoped for. Time be yours indeed. May you find the missing In the mid-80s, McCoy and I weren't doing much performing, but we did get together to finish and polish new songs, and we often went into the studio to record them. And while we've discovered over the years how much we have in common, what first attracted me to this brother of a different mother was how dissimilar McCoy and I were. Well, my older brother Mike and I grew up doing our best to stay inside the lines, McCoy was one of those guys who simply needed to go outside them. He had to test the limits. He was perpetually mischievous. He grew up in a small town, was good-looking, charming in a James Dean sort of way, quarterback of the football team, point guard on the basketball team, played trumpet in the band. He was on the honor roll. He was an easy guy to like and an easy one to enable. I knew I wasn't going to call him on much of anything, I mean, he was the golden boy. And in the fall of 85, we'd been friends, and we'd sung together for 20 years. I'd helped him build his house, participated in his triathlon, and never would have guessed we were just getting started. And didn't know how he would continue to grow from the golden boy he'd been to the loving man he became. When his dad died in 1986, McCoy told me he was going to learn to fly a plane so he could take his dad's ashes and spread them on Mount Rainier, where his dad had worked as a young man. After hearing the story, I went home and I picked up a guitar, and for one of the few times in my life, I feel like I was just given a song. A song that starts when my days are over and the race has been run. Turn my body to ashes and fly toward the sun and over the mountain. Let those ashes go down to the forest and the river below. I'll be part of the river that flows to the sea, part of the great waves that crash on the beach, and part of the gray clouds that thunder to shore, and I'll be a raindrop that falls in storm. With a few exceptions, like part of the river and the missing piece, during those years, I tended to write songs I thought Nashville would like rather than songs that expressed how I was feeling and who I was. During a trip to Nashville in the mid-'80s, someone recommended a book by Sheila Davis called The Craft of Lyric Writing. That and one she wrote later called The Songwriter's Idea Book are the two best books on songwriting I've ever read. And I still refer to them when my songwriting gets stuck feels uninspired may you welcome new adventure may you know you have a home may you share yourself with others and share with yourself alone may your need for faith diminish may faith itself increase and may you find the missing piece this chronicle is called some brothers and a mother and last year, during the holidays, my mother at 90 gave me then 65 a most precious gift. For the first time, she was able to tell me that with her husband in a mental hospital, unsure when or if he would come home and who he would be if he did, 
caring for a two-year-old, living yet again with her parents, unsure about the next day, much less about some uncertain future, she simply wasn't ready for me to be born. Nearly a, a year after that surprise sharing, one way to explain the significance of her gift is to say that once I heard that, I could finally understand and had a place to stand regarding things that had consciously or unconsciously haunted me for years. It's a gift that I feel is so valuable I have struggled with whether to keep it for myself or share it with the world. I've decided it's a gift too precious to hoard. In December of 1986, I recorded 25 minutes of me playing the classic guitar and made cassette copies with a picture of my mom as a young woman on the cover, and I called it For Ruth. That, that's her name. A year earlier, I decided I wanted to grow and be challenged as a musician. The route I chose was to study the classic guitar. I found a perfect teacher, Gary Basiri. He was a working musician who knew how to teach, and every week he taught me something new. He advised me to divide my practice time into thirds, using a third each for technique, repertoire, and sight reading. Would you recommend an hour a day, I asked. An hour is a good amount of time, he replied. But if you have three minutes on a given day, do one minute each. What a great answer. There's a quote I attribute to perhaps the most important classic guitarist ever, Andre Segovia. He said if he doesn't practice for a day, he knows it. If he doesn't pick up a guitar for two days, his manager knows it, and three days, and everyone knows it. Now, if that's true for Segovia, what about the rest of us? Classic guitar technique is precise. Because I'm naturally casual in my approach, studying it made me think and practice with a different mindset. Once, after he heard me sing, Gary urged me to make my fingers as expressive as my voice. I began writing ideas for a series of essays I called music as a second language. I began wearing rubber gloves when I was washing the dishes to protect my fingernails on my right hand. I practiced every day for three years. If I was having a bad day songwriting, an hour of playing the classic guitar made any day feel worthwhile. I even got a paying job playing classic guitar. And in the fall of 87, Gary was leaving teaching. And for the last lesson, I met him at the music store wearing my tuxedo and playing an hour of repertoire from memory. A special moment in a musical journey. Find the missing piece to all your wars. Share the missing piece that is in others. And be the missing piece that someone else is searching for. One of my favorite quotes is from Robert Fulgham. I believe that imagination is stronger than knowledge, that myth is more potent than history, that dreams are more powerful than facts, that hope triumphs over experience, that laughter is a cure for grief, and I believe that love is stronger than death. I have a couple of stepdaughters who have chosen very different paths through life. The way I describe their choices is to 
say that one chose a track and the other a trail. And while I'm proud of and happy for both of them, it's the one who chose a trail whose life most mirrors mine. As I look back on my life in the mid-80s, while I didn't know it at the time, in a lot of ways I was taking a respite from blazing trail. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying that imagination is more important than knowledge. And looking back, when that big concert in Seattle in the fall of 84 was over, and after the hopes of Johnny Cash recording my song, Dear Partner, had faded, I had trouble imagining a way forward. Or maybe I ran out of the kind of energy I needed to keep hacking away. And it was time to simply gather knowledge. I was lucky to find good teachers and guides. Learning about novel writing, returning to the Brothers Four, having unique moments with family, continuing to share the journey with McCoy, studying the classic guitar, were all ways to find ways to imagine ways into a still uncertain future. Find the missing piece to every puzzle. Find the missing piece to all your wars. Share the missing piece that is in others. And be the missing piece that someone else is searching and be the missing piece that someone else is searching for. Thanks for sharing one of those times in a life at the next campfire, singing our way. Hope to see you then. <laughs>